Larry who? Never heard of her. What sort of a man is he? Dick from Bama. A man like any other, but more so. I thought he was dead. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Let's light this candle. Welcome in to the Larry Alex Taunton Show, and I am Larry Alex Taunton. You know, the, Gene Stallings is not the only person who uh, who thought I was dead. There are there there have been many false reports of my early demise, but I'm delighted to be with you. On this gorgeous day in the American South, and uh, you know, some of us were just just blessed um, to be born in the American South. Unfortunately, some of you were were born in other parts of the country or other parts of the world. But those of us um, who were born in the American South, I tell you, on days like today, you really know the meaning of uh, God's God shed His grace on thee, and uh, really, it is. A beautiful day. I'll be singing a very different tune in a in about oh six weeks where when it's blistering hot uh, down here. But right now um, it isn't. It's uh, it's very lovely. And you know, dominating the news right now, of course, is still the Russo-Ukrainian war. And we've we've discussed that in our two previous two previous shows. But I want to talk about. There's several things we're going to get to today. Uh, the education of children. Um, and uh, apologetics is a topic that's going to dominate um, the show today. But before I get to that, I want to talk a little bit about the Russo-Ukrainian war and the issue of propaganda. The news outlets, the mainstream media news outlets, are just now seeming to become aware of the fact that Zelensky cannot be trusted. When they, they've, they've had the position all along, rightly so, that Putin cannot be trusted, um, but they've been ready to swallow absolutely everything that uh, Zelensky has been feeding to them. Uh, he who is so eager to draw us uh, into World War III, trying his level best um, to get the EU involved, NATO involved, and of course the United States involved in his war with Russia, but it seems that the, the mainstream media is just now going, you know what, maybe these videos that we've been circulating aren't wholly trustworthy. You know, is it possible that some of these things are fake? Some of them are made up. And of course, the answer is yes. Um, so many of the videos that we've been uh, um, uh, seeing all over social media, for instance, of a Russian tank uh, we were told, you know, targeting a civilian car and driving right over it. Uh, we all saw that horrifying video. Well, it turns out it, uh, it was a Ukrainian tank. It wasn't a Russian tank um, at all. The, um, the ghost of Kiev, the, um, the fighter pilot who supposedly shot down 10, 10 MiGs. You know, you're an ace if you achieve, I don't know, what is it, five or six or seven over the course of a career. But supposedly, in the course of just a few minutes, um, a um, you know a Ukrainian fighter pilot shoots down ten. Well, it turns out that video is from a video game. It's actually not even a real video. Um, but Zelensky has been has been showing it again and again and again, even after it's been debunked. And we've been seeing uh, any number of other videos. You know, we talked about the Ukrainian orphanages. We talked about the hospitals. 
Let me just caution all of you that um, throughout the history of Russia, and in this moment, uh, when I speak of Russia, I mean the histories of Russia and Ukraine, because throughout much of their history, they have been the same country. Not separate countries, they have been the same country. The very first Russian state founded in the ninth century was founded in modern-day Kiev, that is to say modern-day Ukraine. So modern-day Russia, you know, sprang forth um, from what is Ukraine. Ukraine, the very word itself, you know, indicates just how problematic this country's history it is. It is the, uh, the word Ukraine means borderland. And the Russians, as I have said before, have always seen it as absolutely essential to their own survival. But the Russians and the Ukrainians, they are experts at propaganda in a way that Americans, um, a way Westerners, uh, for the most part, can scarcely comprehend. Now, throughout much of our history, um, we have been used to having a media that at least took a posture of having some degree of objectivity when they're reporting on Republicans and Democrats. Now, we are seeing that, you know, uh, utterly cast aside in recent decades, and particularly uh, since, oh, say, Donald Trump decided to run for president of the United States. So 2015, 2016, uh, we've seen that completely, you know, thrown out the window. Even still, we are in the infancy of uses of propaganda, whereas the Ukrainians, the Russians, they are experts at this. They are very good at um, deceiving populations because it's what they've done since time immemorial. And so I would caution you when you're watching the news and you see what purports to be a video of atrocity that's committed by either side, first of all, just know this. The Russians and Ukrainians commit loads of atrocities. They have throughout their entire history. So I do not find it difficult to believe, um, you know, mass shootings, um, executions, uh, these kinds of things are, they're, you know, this is just part and parcel of their history, if you know anything about them. But you should also be wary of the videos for another reason, because often they are propaganda. For instance, here's one way to tell. When camera placement seems just too good in a scene of what purports to be warfare, you've, you've seen this, you know, where you will, you, the, the camera is ahead of the frontline troops. You know, you, you, you see the, the troops charging into the field, and somehow the cameraman is magically way ahead of all of them. And he's getting these beautiful shots of them charging across the field at the enemy. Those are recreations. Those are fake. Um, where you had, I mean, for instance, the ghost of Kiev, somehow a cameraman was getting absolutely everything this fighter pilot was doing. He ejects from his plane, and we have a full shot of his face, you know, the entire time. He's falling. We have video of him falling. And yet it seemed almost no one was going, where is that video coming from? Who's doing that? You know, um, you know so you, you need to be aware of these camera angles, but you also just need to be aware of the fact that the Russians and the Ukrainians, more often than not, are probably lying to you. 
There's a term in Russian history, in Ukrainian history, and it's called a Potemkin village. Some of you will be familiar with this. Prince Gregory Potemkin, lover of Catherine the Great. Catherine the Great was on the uh, the Russian throne from 1762 to 1796. And uh, Potemkin, one of her favorites, both in bed and out of it, um, Gregory Potemkin uh, was the governor of Astrakhan, um, you know, governor in uh, of, of the southern Russias, as it were. And um, uh, Catherine was going to be touring this region with uh, Joseph II of Austria. So she gives Gregory Potemkin a lot of money, you know, to spruce things up, to make them look really impressive for this head of state when he comes. And so what does Potemkin do? He creates what we might call um, something equivalent to Hollywood sets, where um, Catherine and uh, Joseph II, their their entourage, you know, their their motorcade, as it were, uh, carriage cade. Uh, as it's coming through, they see what appear to be beautiful towns, beautiful people, um, peasants who were given new clothing and spruced up and placed out along the roadways while the undesirables were hidden away and where people really didn't see what was going on. This became known as a Potemkin village. A Potemkin village means uh, it's fraudulent. It's not the real deal. Um, Come forward a couple of hundred years, and we come to Boris Yeltsin. I believe he was visiting um, Boston, say circa, you know, 91, 1990. And he said, you know, we, I'd really like to see, I think it was his first visit into the United States, but he said, I'd like to see your, your food distribution. So they just take him to an average American supermarket, you know, think Publix, you know, or, you know, Kroger or something like that. And he looks at it and he sees all the fruits and vegetables and he sees all the spices and all the canned goods and the breads and the cheeses and the meats. And he laughs and he says, listen, I'm a Russian. I know a Potemkin village when I see one. (laughs) Now, good try. Now show me how you really distribute food in this country. And they said, no, no, this isn't a Potemkin village. This is just a typical supermarket. They're all like this. And he didn't believe it. He was sure that it was was a fake. And it's because he was used to um, his own country lying, not just to their own citizens, but to foreign dignitaries when they would visit Russia um, or Ukraine and showing them something that just simply is not real. Well, what you're seeing often on social media regarding this war is a Potemkin village, but not all of it is coming from the Russians and the Ukrainians. Some of it is coming from our own media who are offering very lopsided narratives into what is going on here. And I just want to say again, lest some of you who are listening accuse me of being pro-Putin, I am not pro-Putin. I'm anti-war. I don't want to see um, a million American boys get slaughtered um, in a meaningless war uh, in Eastern Europe. And undoubtedly, if we're, we're drawn into uh, what's going on in Ukraine, it will become a general European conflict. It will not remain, it will not remain um, you know, confined um, to Ukraine. It will spill well beyond um, those borders. And something no one seems to be asking is, what, 
what will China be doing throughout all of this? Um, I suggest to you they will be sitting and watching and waiting to pick clean the bones of both sides when it is all over. But we don't want to be drawn into this war, and that is because Ukraine is uh, not the ally we need and Russia is not the enemy we want. They are a nuclear power, and um, they, uh, you know, who knows? Uh, they might might be willing to go nuclear, but whether they do or not, um, conventional warfare at this stage of the game, I like what Einstein said. Einstein said, I know not by what means the Third World War will be fought, but the fourth one will be fought with sticks and stones, you know, meaning that the total obliteration um, of man is at hand because we now have that capability. In the, uh, you know, in the age of um, Russian maniacs like uh, Ivan Grozny, that is to say Ivan the Terrible, as we call him, surrounded a city and in a six-weeks orgy of violence, he slaughtered its inhabitants. But he had to kill them one at a time. He did not have Zyklon B, which was available to Adolf Hitler, um, he did not have, as yet, had not been invented the guillotine. Um, he did not have the machine gun. He did not have bombs. He didn't have missiles. And he certainly didn't have nuclear weapons. Well, we now are in the nuclear age. And the ability um, to cause mass destruction um, is available to all participants here, except, of course, the Ukrainians. And that's because we stupidly... Uh, in the 1990s, uh, under, uh, I believe it was um, Bill Clinton, we convinced the Ukrainians to give up their nuclear arms because we told them we would protect them. We're on the other side of the planet, but we said, you know what? You know, Yes, you're a border state with Russia, but we'll protect you. Well, we see how that's working out for them. Not very well at all, but just know, new term for the day, Potemkin Village. Just know that you're, what you are seeing in media much of the time is a Potemkin Village. And the, uh, um, the storylines are, are tilted in such a way as to manipulate you emotionally uh, to get you to react and to demand for no-fly no zones or American intervention and so on. And just know at whose expense that will take place. It will, it will take place uh, at the expense of American boys um, who will die meaninglessly. And um, gosh, if I'm an American soldier, do I want to go to war with Joe Biden as commander in chief? He just abandoned Americans in Afghanistan. And $85 billion plus of state of the art military hardware in Afghanistan. Saw those images of the planes taking off and Afghans falling from the plane. We um, we abandoned our allies there. It's become kind of a pattern with us since Vietnam, since we pulled out in what was it, uh, April May, uh, you know, nineteen seventy five, I think. And um, we've have done it repeatedly around the world. We're very good at starting, you know, at at, at getting wars going and and uh, getting involved and declaring early victory and coming home. But our foreign policy, um, our war strategy, oh, for the last four or five decades has been very ADD. And uh, we do not want to go to war. 
uh, at this stage and certainly would not want to go to war um, with Joe Biden as, uh, as commander in chief. Let's move from that to talking about public education. Now, why would I want to talk about, or more broadly, not just public education, but the education you know, of, of our children? Why would I want to talk about this? Well, first of all, I was for many years an educator. And so the issue um, interests me, but also uh, because what we are seeing, you know, there's a part of me that wants to say I told you so, because 30 years ago, I was already sounding the alarm for where we were headed in the culture and what the culture was going to look like if the what was then the paradigm, and of course now it's moved on and is 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 much worse. But if the paradigm at that time um, was to remain intact, what I was seeing with children, how children were being educated, Abraham Lincoln said this: the philosophy, the philosophy in the schoolroom in one gender generation is the philosophy of government in the next. And the philosophy in the schoolroom, um, a generation ago was utterly godless. And we shouldn't really be surprised to see that it's godless in um, our current generation. And this is because um, I don't want to sound like I'm just pounding on parents, not my intention to do so here. But if you're young uh, mothers and fathers, let me say this to you, or grandparents, uh, with influence on your own children. Please, please, please do not turn your children over to the state. Do not allow your children to be educated in government schools. Now, some of you will say, and I'm not very sympathetic um, to this particular view, many people will say, well, gosh, Larry, I'm sure you were you were able to homeschool your own children. I'm sure you and Lori, you know, had plenty of money. Not so. We were quite poor, um, actually. Um, you know, Lori was in. Uh, she was she was a nurse, still is. And um, you know, I was I was uh, I think when we started, yes, I was teaching. I was making twenty eight thousand five hundred dollars a year as a teacher in a uh, preparatory school. And um, listen, we had free tuition to send our children um, to the school where I taught. Um, but we decided we wanted to homeschool our children, and we were going to make whatever sacrifices were necessary in order to do that. So Lori left the, the nursing profession, and we lived off of my $28,500, which isn't much today, and I assure you it wasn't much then. And um, we just said, we're going to make these sacrifices because it matters to us that we are the most important influence in our children's lives. Um, their values, the values that will be inculcated in them will be us. And I won't have a teacher telling me what the issues are with my own children. I will be the one to know. I will know. So we made that commitment to do that. Now, the credit really belongs to my wife, Lori, and that's because Lori was the one who initially came up with the idea to homeschool. To me, it sounded Branch Davidian, and uh, I just thought, this this sounds a little weird. Um, and I remember saying, 
you know, you were public school educated, I was public school educated. By the way, if there's any flaws in my logic, any flaws in, uh, in my education, just know I was educated in a government school. And I remember her response to that. So you think that, um, you know, what I had, what you had, that's good, and that's what our children should have. Yeah, yeah, they're not too, they're not too good for that. And she began to point out, you know, where were you first exposed to, um, oh, let's say to, um, to drugs? Public school. Where did you first hear, you know, discussions about things like homosexuality, pornography, um, public school? <laughs> where were you introduced to the idea of, you know, teen sex and all that kind public school? Um, you know, party, public school. Okay, 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 I get your point. All right, you have a point. So maybe it wasn't so great. Oh, and do you have any, you know, childhood scars from from uh, from public schools? Yes, admit. Okay, you have a point. You have a point. And um, so I finally decided. You know, Michael is our oldest, and um, I finally decided. Look, we'll start him a year early. He's bright enough. And we'll give it a year. But if it doesn't work and it looks like he's turning out to be an oddball, you know, we're going to put him, you know, put him into, into the schools. Um, and I loved it immediately. You know, the idea of public education becoming compulsory didn't happen until 1933 in the United States, meaning most children were home educated historically for millennia children were home educated. And it's only, you know, really in the last couple of generations that it we now have this mentality that says that children have to go to public schools, you know, or private schools. Anything outside of that is just weird. Not historically speaking, it isn't. Not at all. And um, the idea that the argument, when people begin using the argument, well, there's the socialization issue. When that's the argument you're making, you're admitting you've lost. Because you're, you're conceding that the education is better. And by the way, it is. The statistics show that parents, whether or not they have a college degree, that their children perform better on standardized exams than do children from either public or private or independent schools. So homeschool children are outpacing everybody. And our children all went to um, to college on, uh, you know, on scholarships. Uh, they've all done quite, quite well for themselves. But let's just say that weren't the case. Anytime a homeschool kid does turn out to, to be a little strange or, you know, has some some failing that people are picking at, they'll say, it's because he's homeschooled. Do we want to start having a conversation about all the public school failures? We're surrounded by them. The ranks of Antifa, of Black Lives Matter, are full of them. Are you seeing any of these idiot public school teachers um, on TikTok, on Twitter, on Facebook and the outrageous things that they are saying. Um, not only 
are they uh, you know, poorly educated, but they're perverse. This is a perverse generation. I've thought about Jesus' words over Jerusalem, a wicked, uh, adulterous generation. This is a, uh, a, a wicked and, and perverse generation that we're dealing with. And moms and dads, as I start moving into the topic of apologetics, apologetics one of the big misunderstandings about apologetics is this idea that it's it's for specialists like me. You know, that it's God's special forces and we perform some kind of intellectual jujitsu, you know, on people. And we're quick with the response, a, a, a witty retort. We slice people up with our, um, you know, relentless logic. And that's not what apologetics is, or at least most of the time, that's not what apologetics is. It's defending the faith. It comes from 1 Peter 3.15, always be ready to give answer for the hope that is in you. That word that is there translated as answer is the word, the Greek word, apologia. And um, it's sometimes translated as defense, always be ready to give answer or a defense for the hope that is in you. And that's the calling of every Christian. Whether you're gifted at apologetics or not, you're, you're supposed to fulfill the Great Commission. It's your job to, um, to share the hope, um, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is also the task of every believer to defend the Christian faith. Would you defend your children if, if someone were criticizing them? Would you defend your wife? Would you defend your husband if you were out and um, someone was um, attacking them, well, of course you would. Well, you should defend your God. You should defend your faith. You just should defend him who gave you the hope of eternal life. And if you're somebody listening to the show who doesn't know what I'm talking about, you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, let me say this. First of all, email us. Go to go to my website at Larry Alex Taunton. That's T-A-U-N-T-O-N, Larry Alex Taunton. Dot com. You can write to us. Um, we'll explain this to you in, uh, in more detail. But I want to be very clear. I'm not asserting that as a Christian, I'm better than anyone. I'm most certainly not. Um, there are many unbelievers who are, who are better people you know, than, than I am. Rather, um, what I'm claiming is that as a Christian, I have received the forgiveness of him who said, let there be light of the creator of the universe, and I do my best to serve him with everything that I have, with, um, with, with any gifts or talents that he has given me, um, with, um, with the material possessions that I have, um, I am to serve him um, with my life and breath and everything, and I endeavor to do that. I, I do it very imperfectly, sometimes catastrophic failures. But um, but the but the God that I serve is not Allah. Um, my God is a God of grace. He's a God of uh, uh, redemption. He is a God of restoration, and He's ready to restore you. And if there are any of you who are listening, by the way, who are holding your lapels, and are quite sure that you're a good person, that to me is evidence you are a very bad person, <laughs> because you don't get who you are. You don't understand. Um, your the own you know the wickedness of your own soul, and your need, your need for the grace of Jesus Christ. But 
apologetics, ladies and gentlemen, it begins at home. Um, it, be- it begins with the training of your own children. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says um, you shall um, talk with them, meaning God's law, when they rise up and when they go by the way and when they lie down, you shall talk with them. You'll teach them. You'll inculcate God's values in them. Psalm 127 says, children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. I took my charge to homeschool my children and to prepare my children for um, adulthood, for honorable manhood. And in the case of Sasha, when we adopted her, when she was uh, almost 11 to honorable um, you know, womanhood from Psalm 127 because um, I, it gave me a visual of what my task is. Um, I am sharpening them like arrows. You know, and again, that, that verse says, you know, children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. And uh, I, I saw our task, Lori and I, our task was to sharpen them like arrows, put them in our quiver, and, and at such time that they were ready to stand on their own two feet, we would draw them from the quiver and we would aim them at a wicked world and send them into it. And our desire um, was that they would raise up um, godly seed, godly children, but also that they would penetrate the corridors of power, that they would go into the world um, to be salt and light. And I have heard many parents foolishly say things like this. Well, we send our kids to the public school so that they can be salt and light. What is wrong with you? Do you think Junior is ready at 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 15, that he is ready to stand against an entire godless school system? You're wrong. Uh, no, he is not. And, they, and you'll also hear people say things like, um, well, you just can't shelter them. Um, yes, you can, and you should. That's your job as a parent. There comes a time where you let go of their hand and where you send them in into the world, but good heavens, yes, you are sheltering them. You're sheltering them from the crap that's all over TV, that's all over the internet, that's all over their phones, that's everywhere out in, into the culture. And you introduce them to it gradually and at your supervision. I think of a mama bear um, or a mama lion. She takes the cubs. Does she just she just t- turn them loose? No, she takes them out. She says, watch this. You guys sit right here while I go take down that bull moose. You guys sit right here while I go and, uh, and I run down that antelope. I'm going to show you how it's done. And I'm going to train you up and I'm going to show you the way to stand on your own two feet in the world. We'll talk about this just a little bit more when we come back. But right now, we're going to take a break. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Larry is my favorite player. Welcome back to the Larry Alex Taunton Show. I'm Larry Alex Taunton. Uh, you know, occasionally, you know, Eric Metaxas asked me, you know, why do you use your middle name? Well, I mean, a lot of people use their middle name, but I use it for a very specific reason. And that is because, first of all, I am named after my uncle, Larry Taunton. 
who at one time was fairly well known in the state of Alabama because he was a college president. And, um, and so, you know, there could be that confusion. But, and I don't mind being associated with my uncle, but the other reason is because there was a Democrat congressman from Arkansas who was a very close friend of Bill Clinton. And I do not want to be uh, confused with Democrat congressman. With all due respect to Larry Taunton, the, the congressman from Arkansas, I just want to be clear, I am not him. So we're talking about apologetics, uh, and I'm relating that to the education of children because in my mind, the two of them go together. And in the article that I've written, you can find it on my website at LarryAlexTaunton.com. That's not the congressman's website. That's my website. It's not my uncle's website. It's my website. Um, at LarryAlexTaunton, T-A-U-N-T-O-N.com. Go to that website. You'll find all my articles Everything that I've published from whether it's The Atlantic or CNN or with The American Spectator or lately with Daily Wire, you will find it all there. You'll also find um, previous episodes of this show and um, most of my TV interviews um, you, will, you will find there as well. But if you go there, you'll find an article that I've written on apologetics called The Problem with Apologetics. The ones we have are broken. We need new ones. And, um, and, and in that article, I wanted to achieve a couple of things. One is I wanted to narrow the definition of what it is to be an apologist, and I also wanted to throw it wide open. Uh, on, the, on the one hand, um, I want to narrow it in that not everyone who calls themselves or is called an apologist is actually an apologist. I mean, it's like saying you're a soldier, but all you do is train other, uh, other people to fight. You know, you've never actually been in a fight. Um, well, that's not apologetics. Apologetics, you, you got to engage the battle. At some point, you have to go out there and engage the battle. And I was doing um, Monica Matthews' show um, this morning, and they were taking callers. And a guy called in and said, you know, if you've never done an apologetics before, how do you do it? And I just had a feeling this was a, a military man. And I said, you know, sir, did you, did you serve in the military? He said, as a matter of fact, I did. I served in the Navy. I said, how do they prepare you for warfare? He said, lots of training. And, uh, and I said, and they do that um, because they're getting you ready for the battle. And the only way you really get ready for the battle is to be in the battle. The same way, you got to get out there and you got to do um, apologetics. You just have to get out there and do apologetics. It's okay to say that, I don't know. I don't know the answer. Uh, it's also okay um, if you lose from time to time. My good friend Jay Smith, who will be on the podcast uh, in a couple of weeks, um, Jay, who served for 20, if you know Fixed Point Foundation, our organization, you're, you're familiar with Jay. Um, we've had him a number of times. He's a good friend of mine. But Jay, for 24 years, was um, an evangelist and an apologist um, to radical Muslims in London. And there are loads of them in London, by the way. And um, he was there uh, for 24 years. And Jay said when he first got there, he said, I thought I knew um, Islam pretty well. And he said, I went out and got into debate and I got my tail kicked <laughs> several times. And he said, you know, I'd go back, lick my wounds, study up on the Quran a little bit more, um, learn some of these parts of the Bible that they were bringing up and asking me questions about. And then I'd go out again 
And I go out again. And he said, and I began attending their seminars and their studies of the Quran and of the Hadith. And, and then he eventually got a, um, a PhD in uh, Islamic studies. Jay is one of the foremost, foremost voices um, in that field these days. And Jay would make a sharp distinction, by the way, between apologetics and polemics. There is a difference. Apologetics means to defend, to defend. That's a very different thing than going out and attacking someone else's worldview. Um, because you, if you're a believer, you should be reasonably well-equipped. If you're in the Word, if the Holy Spirit is active in your life, you should be reasonably well-equipped to defend the Christian faith. Now, you may say, but Larry, I don't know anything about the, um, the documents. I, I don't feel competent to discuss you know, Genesis 1 and 2 and creation and the, you know, uh, the, the, the flood and the historicity of the resurrection and all the big questions. I get it. None of us are able to defend the totality of Christian belief. No one can. Um, you know, uh, I suppose you could say that I'm an apologist by profession. When I went out and you know picked a fight, so to speak, um, with my friend Richard Dawkins, the um, the Oxford, the famed Oxford atheist and uh, biologist on scientific questions. That's what I wanted to wanted to debate him on was scientific questions because he had written his mega best selling book in 2006, The God Delusion, and everybody was reading this, and he was basically saying, if you believe there's God, you're an idiot. Well, I did not put myself forward as the guy to debate him. And that's because I knew, I knew, I knew my I know my limitations. I I am not qualified to debate Richard Dawkins on questions of science. I have immense respect for Richard as a scientist. Um, he would he would take me by the floaties and pull me to the deep end of the pool and uh and and drown me. Ladies and gentlemen, when you are defending the Christian faith. That, is a, that doesn't mean that you are competent to attack, let's say, um, Hinduism or, or Islam um, or even certain secular worldviews. You, you you, it doesn't mean that, that you're qualified to do that. It just means that you're qualified to defend, as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 3.15, the hope that is within you. Can you defend the hope that is in you? Can you tell your story of how Jesus Christ changed your life. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, that's what it comes down to. You know, so many people who will ask you questions um, and run you around, run you ragged over all the, uh, you know, the, the big questions surrounding faith. Why does God allow suffering? What about Old Testament violence? You know, what about miracles? Uh, on and on and on. Doesn't mean the questions aren't important, and it doesn't mean the answers aren't important. But you have to also begin to make some distinctions between who is seriously seeking and who is just simply wasting your time. You know, I think it's in, is it in Matthew 10, I believe, where, um, where Jesus says, you know, you go into a town, they don't receive you, you dust off your sandals and you move on. And um, sometimes you have to do that with questions. I don't believe in chasing people. When I was younger, um, I would chase people relentlessly. I don't do that anymore. Um, if they're seriously seeking, if the Holy Spirit is drawing them, then um, I am inclined um, to take my time and to take very seriously their questions. But at some point, 
it has to it has to come down to a very personal decision. Do they believe in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord, or don't they? It has to come down to that. And if your apologetics isn't taking people to the cross, it's not an effective apologetics. Uh, I think that uh, that many people think they're doing God a favor, doing Jesus a favor by not bringing him into the discussion. And, um, you know, this, this, by the way, is probably what makes my approach to Old Testament violence a topic I, I somewhat specialize in, uh, in addressing is it's somewhere along the way I realized that almost everyone who was writing on Old Testament violence was writing on it from an apologetic point of view. And, and I use the word in this case very differently, meaning they weren't defending it so much as apologizing for it. I, I get it. God did, you know, he, he, he did kill the Midianite women, but, and, uh, and then there was that, that, uh, you know, that flood situation and, but, and then you would feel them almost embarrassed, um, you know, trying to, to defend God's decisions there. And I can recall thinking to myself when I, when I was first studying that issue, because it came up a lot, you know, Old Testament violence. By the way, the violence is also in the New Testament. Um, you know, Acts chapter 5, uh, and the Holy Spirit kills, strikes down Ananias and Sapphira. Very uncomfortable story. <laughs> but um, when I was first studying this, I thought, God, I get it. You're our creator. You kill any of us you want anytime you want. But why did you have to record these stories? Why couldn't you just do this as like a black ops? You know, this is just off the books. You just you just do this and you don't tell us about it. And it dawned on me that uh, C.S. Lewis was actually fairly helpful in this, where you have that interesting conversation, you know, in the silver chair where, um, is it Lucy? Who is it who asked that question? Anyway, doesn't matter. You have um, a child asking... Um, Aslan, who of course represents um, Jesus, you have this child saying that they're thirsty, and um, you know, can I come and drink of the water? And this conversation is uh, many of you are familiar with it, and it goes back and forth for a while. And she says, "Do you promise? Do you promise that you won't? That you won't? Um, is it? Is it? Uh, who is it? Jill? Okay, Jill." Uh, Jill is the is the child, and she asks Aslan, "Do you promise that you won't eat me?" And um, he says, "No, I won't make that promise." And he's basically saying, "You have to make a judgment about my character and whether or not I'm trustworthy." And then he goes on to say, "I've swallowed whole kingdoms, and realms, and kings and queens, and you name it." And um, and so it is with our God. And I realized that God did not had never asked me to make excuses for Him. He, you know, the the best way of addressing, I realized, Old Testament violence was in a proper understanding of who he is. And that is to say, if you're trying to give explanation for the violence and and that is the God-ordained violence, there's a lot of violence, by the way, in the Bible that isn't God-ordained. You know, Judges 19 and the the um you know dismembering of the uh uh of the uh of of the Doggone it, concubine um, in that in that story. That's violence recorded in the Bible. It's not it's not violence that has been ordained by God. 
But even when you remove that stuff, there's still a lot that remains. And I realized, you know, um, the best way to approach this is to understand that if I'm trying to explain this from the perspective of the image that most people have of God, that he's some kind of cosmic Santa Claus, then it becomes very hard to explain this. If, however, I'm approaching this from the perspective that God is not that, that in addition to being a God of love and mercy and grace, that he's also a God of um, justice, that he is a God of vengeance. That's a word that Christians are very uncomfortable with, but the Lord is not uncomfortable with it. Vengeance is mine, and he will take vengeance um, at judgment. And he's taken it a time or two um, before then. Um, I point you to a few cities that he removed from the face of the earth. If you're embracing the full character of our God, then you approach those stories very differently, and you begin to see him in a, a very, very different kind of light. But again, within the context of, um, of apologetics, of defending the Christian faith, you have to understand the difference between defending your position, defending your story of how Jesus Christ changed your life, and defending his character, defending who he is, and coming out of the trenches and going after the other person's worldview. That's not apologetics. That's polemics. That's a different that's a different thing, and you need to be clear in your mind which is which. I am, a, in addition to being an apologist, I'm a polemicist. But not on every subject. I can't. I can't go after every worldview. Um, I don't know every worldview. I certainly don't know um, uh, um, very many well enough to dismantle them. Um, so there are a few where I feel that I'm very competent um, to do that, and there are others where I take the position of defending. I take the position of defending the Christian faith. But that again starts at home, and it starts with your children. And ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening to me and you're one of those parents who made the mistake and now realizes it, that your children, you know, um, went off to schools where they adopted worldviews that are hostile to your own, continue to pray for them. Um, God's grace is real. Um, His Holy Spirit can intervene and change lives just as it changed um, anyone who has believed in him. But also, um, you can have influence with your with your grandchildren. Um, you can continue to be a, a, a mitigating influence in their lives, and maybe you'll have enough influence with your own children to prevent them from making that same mistake. Now, you might be one of those people who thinks, I, you know, I'm just not competent to teach my own children. Yes, you are. You are. You're competent enough to do this. Um, there are loads of resources for parents who choose to do it. Uh, my wife has, um, has mentored many a parent through the process of homeschooling and helping them to, to do a very good job of that. But what about apologetics, you know, writ large? Apologetics as we know it on the, um, the larger Christian cultural stage. Well, again, it often takes on this this look of being some kind of intellectual jujitsu that we perform, just a, just a few of us. And, uh, and what I find very problematic with this, with the quote-unquote professional um, apologists, is that too many of them like this view because it gives them a little bit of an exclusivity in their territory. It creates a, it creates a certain kind of um, 
oh, job security, um, I, I guess. And yet, I see so many of them, both in seminaries, uh, in colleges, and uh, in books and seminars, that they're addressing the wrong issues. They're still spinning their wheels on things like, let's say, um, postmodernism. And uh, we've the, the 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 public debate has moved on several notches from that, an offshoot from it, where if you're apologetics, you're not addressing issues like socialism and the offshoots of that, um, critical race theory, Black Lives Matter, transgenderism, uh, homosexuality, the family. If you're not addressing those issues, your apologetic is probably not very effective. Um, you're the, 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 you know at, at various points in a battle, the attacks come at different spots in the line. Look at Gettysburg. Didn't come. Um, you know, it was on uh, one flank one day, and it came at the center the next. Uh, so it is in the cultural battle. The attacks on the church, the attacks on our faith, uh, come at different points in the line. And you need to be ready and retooling for where those battles are, are where those battles are being waged, because they're not always, you know, happening in the same place. Now, people will ask me, "Well, Larry, in your apologetics, are you are you classical or presuppositional?" Don't get don't get bogged down in that nonsense. Do what works. Use the Holy Spirit. I, I will use one and then the other at at different times. Um, my goal is to drive towards the cross, to the person of Jesus Christ. That's where I want to take the discussion. At best, I want to get them into the Word. Many of you will have read my book somewhere upon a shelf here behind me, my book, The Faith of Christopher Hitchens. Um, I wasn't arguing that Christopher Hitchens um, was a Christian. Uh, in fact, um, I make quite clear that I did not believe that he ever gave his life to Christ, but I kept saying with Christopher, to the uninitiated, Christopher Hitchens was a you know was a well-known atheist journalist, and um, he wrote um, at least one book on uh, his atheism. Um, God is not great. How religion poisons everything tells you everything about what he thought. And I debated Christopher publicly and privately many times, and. Um, you know, uh, we took a couple of lengthy road trips together, and part of what I, part of my apologetic was to keep saying, Christopher, you keep saying nonsense about the Bible, and I don't believe you've ever read it. And finally, I shamed him into a study of the Gospel of John. Gospel of John is where I like to go. You might like to take him to Numbers or Leviticus or <laughs> Revelation or Romans, but I find John to be a very accessible book um, to unbelievers because it's narrative and because the simplicity of the text belies its profundity. That, that book is so deep, but it's like an onion. You know, you can, if you don't, if, if, if you're unable to get to the, to the core of that thing, it's okay because you might not fully understand um, the, uh, the broader metaphorical significance of um, the resurrection of Lazarus, but you will get the fact that Jesus raised a man from the dead. <laughs> I mean, you will, you will get that part of the story. Anyway, I got Christopher in the Word. I knew that was important, and it's because I knew that was the most powerful apologetic of all, because 
um, the word is as sharp as a two-edged sword, and I want it to do the, the fighting for me. Um, no matter how clever I may think I am, I'm not as effective as God is. And so getting them into God's word is, uh, is very important. But you may also be thinking, well, Larry, you're saying, gosh, to be an effective apologist these days, uh, you need to know about socialism, Marxism, critical race theory, Black Lives Matter. If there are preachers, you know, within the sound of my voice, and you do not feel that you are competent to address those issues, I get it. It can sound very intimidating. Um, it would be like somebody telling me, Larry, to be an effective apologist, you really need to know how to how to do trigonometry really effectively. <laughs> I would just think, oh my gosh, you know, I'm not sure I'm I'm up for that. Um, doesn't interest me um, a whole lot. If you're a preacher within the sound of my voice, I'll tell you this: you don't know what to preach on. You feel overwhelmed um, on preaching on a biblical perspective on justice not social justice. That's not a biblical term. Justice is. Preach on hell. That is jarring to a few of you. Whoa! All the church growth um, (laughs) consultants. You know, there are loads of church growth consultants. Every church has them these days. They pay loads of money to people to tell you how to grow your church. And... um, as if that's the goal. Numerical growth, I, I'm not sure that I see that that's the goal. It, uh, it, it Throughout the book of Acts, you see the growth of the church, people converted, and um, you know it tells us again and again. But you know, you look at the ministry of an Isaiah, um, I think he's deemed to be pretty successful. Uh, <laughs> uh, from a biblical point of view, I think he received heavenly reward, and my, I don't know that he really saw a lot of converts. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, Jeremiah's preaching was pretty hard, pretty tough plowing. Um, you're called to be faithful. That's what you're called to be. You're called to be faithful. Uh, whether a person converts or not isn't within your power. It's not about Dale Carnegie, you know, how to win friends and influence people, you know, techniques. That's not what it's about. It's about being faithful. But I would have, I really have been thinking lately, I'm, my next article, what I'm working on right now, is on hell. Um, Larry, that's not a way to grow your website. You know, the subscription list, the viewers, you know, people who are listening, as a way to drive people off, and you start talking about hell. I think people need to hear a lot more about hell. Um, and what made me think about it is I opened my Twitter account, and there I saw a baby, a baby girl, looking back at me, her bruised eye half open, her head partially crushed, and she was held in the hands of, I don't know if it was a nurse, a physician, um, I I don't know. But someone was holding um, that aborted baby, not a fetus, a baby, a little girl, that had been um, alleged, uh, allegedly, not merely aborted, but infanticide. The child had been born alive and neck um, uh, twisted like a chicken. Um, And I felt the emotions that washed over me were multiple. I felt rage. I felt grief. And I thought, these people don't fear God. People who do that don't fear God. 
and they ought to fear God because hell is real. And too many Christians, I think, because they're uncomfortable with hell, don't really talk about it. Not really. Uh, in fact, they try to they try to round the edges on that message. Ah, it's a it's a it's a place of um, of separation, you know, from God. Um, I I don't not sure that it you know it's actually you know a lake of fire, um, or they'll say uh, you know it's probably not eternity. Uh, it's annihilation. You know, you will hear things of this nature. I'm reluctant, quite honestly, um, to alter the story from the way that it's written in Scripture. I'm prepared to accept that it's a lake of fire. I'm prepared to accept that it's eternal. And I'm prepared to accept that it's a place of God's wrath. Uh, we're going to take a break here for just a moment. We will um, We will. Uh, be back with you. Others of you, um, this is the end of today's broadcast. We're so glad that you're with us today, and we hope that you'll join us again on another occasion. When we come back, we'll be talking about hell. Welcome back to the show, and uh, you know what? I really feel left out because my commercial breaks, I don't mention my pillow. Um, you know, I think every conservative these days is mentioning my pillow. Mike Lindell, if you are out there and you're listening, can you send me a pillow? I could use a pillow. You guys can go to my pillow and uh, use code Larry, but I don't think it'll do any good for me whatsoever because I don't think I'm entered into their system. But just for fun, go to my pillow and type in code Larry and get zero discount at uh, at, at at my pillow. But but you'll know that we're really professional when we're able to have a my pillow advertise. And I guess in some ways we just did a my pillow advertisement. But what you can do is go to LarryAlexTaunton.com and you can subscribe to this podcast. You subscribe to all our mailers uh, that go out there and you can also support the work of this organization. I'm not shy about asking people uh, to support our work. Um, we need we need the support of people who send us forward and make it possible. We're a, uh, we're a a, uh, a nonprofit, a 501c3. For a minute there, I started to say a, a 401c3. I don't know what that is in the uh, in the in the uh, um, IRS um, big thick um, book there, but we're not a 401c3. We're a 501c3, which means we're a charitable entity. You don't know how long that will last um, with our with our co- uh, current government, current regime. Um, but you can support our work there. There's a giving tab, and uh, you can help send us forth. Uh, enable me to keep um, writing, um, speaking, uh, doing podcasts um, like this, and enabling our staff um, to get it all out there. So we hope that you will um, do so. By the way, I have to say this. It was um, through a couple of donors that every camera that we use, uh, the laptop, all the all of the equipment that we're using for this show, um, you know, comes from sources like that. So it's, it's very important. Before the break, I left on a very cheery subject, and that is the topic of hell. That topic, as I said, um, it dawned on me when I'm looking at these heinous images of murdered children. 
And that's what it is. Um, it's murder. Uh, it is. Uh, many women, by the way, this is not to suggest, by the way, that I don't have tremendous sympathy for the many women who are duped into doing this. It's why, by the way, uh, you have so many on the left who express outrage. Is her name Lila Rose, Lily Rose? Uh, she's a woman on, uh, and forgive me if you are listening, Miss Rose, um, she does uh, wonderful work. She is a woman who is a pro-life advocate, and she is relentless um, on uh, Twitter and elsewhere pushing forward that message. And she just put out these, these pictures of, I think it was five babies, um, where it is believed infanticide was committed against these children. And by the way, whether you kill them in the womb or outside of them, it's you know, the result is the same. It is the same thing, except that it's just another picture of, um, yes, Lila uh, Rose. Um, she does um, wonderful work. And she put out these images of these, um, these children, these dead children. And you have many on the left who just went apoplectic over that. How dare you put those images out, out there? How dare you for killing kids? And then how dare you for being upset that someone should dare show you your handiwork? You know, after World War II, I'm not sure if the Russians did this. They probably just shot people. But um, the American and British zones, they, in, in the, uh, the, the sections of Germany that they conquered, and then they discovered, of course, you know, places like Dachau, they required the citizens in those towns, the citizens of Dachau, Dachau is actually a little town, it's not just the name of a concentration camp. They required them to tour at gunpoint, to tour the town. You want to say I'm not going through? Oh, yes, you will go through. You will go through and look at everybody in here and see what your country did, what you allowed to take place. We're going to force you to come through and see it. You're going to suffer the nightmares and the stench of the dead, stinking bodies of these, these people in here who you murdered. We're going to make you look at it. I wish we could make every, every pro-choice advocate see their handiwork, to see what they're doing. And this is partially what brings me to the topic of hell, ladies and gentlemen, because... You don't fear God when you think it's okay to perform cha sex change operations on minors. When you think sexualizing children, we're moving very rapidly towards pedophilia. We're there. The only thing I maintain really that's left is cannibalism, and I will predict it's coming. That will be, you, you, will, you will hear um, you know, soft arguments, you know, floated, not that there are any soft arguments on that, but, you know, that maybe we should contemplate, you know, those kind of, we're going towards Soylent Green <laughs> and where uh, our culture, because we have suppressed the knowledge of God in Romans 1 fashion, we now are at the theater of the absurd where we will embrace every and any kind of heinous idea. Nothing is too much. And we're now, you have people, and we're 
take note of who they are. We're starting to discover who these people really are. You know, people who I saw that David French was making a kind of a, a case for transgenderism and how the acceptance of these people. And um, you are seeing, you know, people, uh, you know, on supposedly evangelical Christians, I think it's a time we need to stop calling some of these people that, um, guys like, um, you know, Russell Moore, um, for example, and David French, um, you know, and Tim Keller, uh, people who waste no time in attacking red state evangelical Christians, while it appears they say absolutely nothing about the onslaught of, of Marxism, which is godless and atheistic to its core. 150 million dead in the 20th century alone at the hands of secular regimes, most of which were Marxist, the rest being fascist primarily. But yes, let's Let's write that article, uh, Russell Moore, about how it's wrong to focus on the big sins and we need to focus, you know, really on the small ones. You know what I think is kind of a big sin is when you are abusing your platform as a Christian and you are promoting a leftist agenda. When there is a genocide of unborn in this country and you're not really bothered about it, but instead you're going to use your platform to preach at people who are who decided to vote against someone who said, I will stop this stuff. Let's punch at them. That's the kind of thing um, that, that we're seeing. And it's absolutely outrageous. And I must tell you, if you are, if you are a progressive, if you're someone on the left that you think the sexualizing of children and the slaughter of the unborn are just really not a big deal, but they're quote-unquote human rights, you should be afraid, very afraid, because hell is real. And I don't say that to you, by the way, self-righteously. I'm not claiming to be better than you. I am telling you that I, as a, uh, were I not a Christian, I would be headed there but for the mercy of Jesus Christ, who has imputed to me his own righteousness. But hell is real. And if you are a Christian and that's not a part of your apologetics, you need to be bringing it in. It's Some people I've discovered really need to hear grace and mercy because they're people who don't know that God is not chasing them around with a baseball bat. They have, a, they have a view of God is angry and merciless. And those are the kind of people who need to be told, no, God loves you. He can and will forgive you of your sin if you will ask him. But there's some people who need to hear judgment. Those are the people who do the kinds of things as though there's no God who is watching, as though there's no God who's actually paying attention to what is happening in the world. And I'm mindful of, um, I think it's David Berlinski. It is David Berlinski, who, by the way, is an agnostic. So maybe David should heed some of his own words. But in The Devil's Delusion, I'll quote this in my article, and I'm, I'm not going to quote it here because I, I don't remember it. It's actually fairly lengthy. But he basically says this. He says, what Adolf Hitler didn't believe 
and what Stalin didn't believe and what Mao didn't believe and what Franco didn't believe and what the Nazis didn't believe and the communist commissars didn't believe and the executioners didn't believe is that there was a God to judge them in the next life for their actions in this one. And ladies and gentlemen, there is. That's the biblical argument. And if you're one of those Christians who is saying, trying to soften the edges on hell and say, and by the way, it was the doctrine of hell that drove the first and second great awakenings. You know, very famous sermon, you know, preached by uh, Jonathan Edwards. Not a sensationalist um, uh, sermon. Just laying out, this is the biblical reality. You will tumble into eternity. I used to say to, I, I remember telling Christopher Hitchens when Christopher told me that many Christians were praying for him because he had, um, you know, been diagnosed with cancer and they were praying for his healing. And I said, you know, Christopher, that's not been my prayer. That jarred him. My prayer is that God would use this to break you. I used to pray that for my own father who was, who was not a believer um, and I would say, God, do whatever it takes. I used to pray, you know, for his vices. And then I became, you know, much more sophisticated in, as a Christian in my prayers. And I pray, God, do whatever it takes to break him so that he receives you. It is better that you break his body than destroy his soul. And I said, Christopher, I consider your cancer diagnosis to be an act of mercy. What? That's not what the other preachers or other Christians are saying to me. I said, well, I think it's an act of mercy. You know, God could have just grabbed you by the, excuse me, God could have, (laughs) God could have just smacked you in the face. God could have just grabbed you by the shirt collar and pulled you into eternity in an instance, but, but he didn't do that. Instead, what he has done, because Christopher told me that um, his uh, cancer diagnosis, he had throat cancer, was a death sentence. You know, only 5% survive it, so a 95% mortality rate. I said, Christopher, God has shown you mercy because he has announced he's coming for you. Roughly six months. He's coming for you. And I think he's giving you a chance to reconsider. You know, we talk about Pascal's wager. You've wagered that God does not exist. He's giving you a chance to reconsider your wager and say, are you sure you want to tumble into eternity and face me with your heart in this state of rebellion against me? Because it will be a terrifying day if you do. I like to think that penetrated somewhere into Christopher's heart, into his mind. I have no way of knowing that. His widow maintains that he, he never received Christ, and um, you know she doesn't know what went on in his heart either. But you know, for all intents and purposes, that that appears to be the case. But um, I will tell you, if he did not receive Jesus Christ, he faced an angry God, not a merciful one, and um, and he faced uh, he faced the condemnation of a place called hell. And I do not say that, ladies and gentlemen, in any celebratory way. 
I am not praying for or rooting for the demise of my enemies or yours. I am not praying for or rooting for God to come and crush and send people off to hell. I'm just simply telling you that as an act of, um, you know, of mercy, if you care about your unbelieving brothers and sisters, you will tell them that hell is real. They need to know that, that it is a, it is a real place. And if you're softening the edges on what the Bible actually says, I hear people say, well, uh, I mentioned this before, that hell is you know, it's a place of separation from God. If, I don't, if I'm Christopher Hitchens and somebody tells me that, what do I care? I don't even believe in God. Or I may think, well, I don't like him, so I'm happy to spend eternity apart from him. You know, you hear all the stupid jokes people will say. It's, it's better to rule in, in hell than to serve in heaven. That's the kind of statement you make when you haven't a clue what you are talking about. Sounds very bold until you find yourself standing before the throne of the Almighty. Hell, ladies and gentlemen, is not a place of separation the way it is commonly understood. What, what is meant by that is that hell is not hell is not a place of spatial separation from God where where you're 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 in one place and he's in another God will be in hell he reigns in hell let me give you a a, a jarring depiction of hell hell is a good place God created hell as a good place i love the way milton put it as a, for the destruction of evil Hell was created for a righteous purpose, for the destruction of evil. God will be sovereign in hell just as he is in heaven. It's not like it's this cosmic dumping ground where God hasn't a clue what's going on over there. I don't know what's going on over there. Of course he knows. He's God. He's omnipresent. When Scripture speaks of separation, it doesn't mean spatial separation. It means separation from the mercy of God. And that is a terrifying thought, meaning that, you know, Jesus said, you know, you know to seek, seek him while he can be found. The door will eventually close on God's mercy. He is giving us a chance today now to repent, to change as a society. You know, I didn't anticipate this is where the podcast was going today. I sound like an Old Testament prophet. And, uh, you know, you have to do this from time to time. But I feel it very, very strongly in my heart today because I looked at those images of those children. And I am so distraught over the sexualization of children of public school teachers sexualizing children, of preparing them, grooming them for pedophilia. People who do that, they don't fear God. And uh, if they don't fear God, that is partially our fault, that we have not told them, yes, we have told you about a God who loves you. We've told you about a God of mercy. You know what you people need to hear is there is a God who will who will let loose his his lightning sword, uh, who is a God of vengeance. And the harm that you do to these children, Jesus spoke of this. 
It is better that a millstone be tied around your neck and you be cast into a sea than that you should cause any of these little ones to sin. You do harm to children. God's wrath burns white hot towards you. You can find forgiveness. You can find mercy, but not forever. Not forever. And you need to understand that there is justice ultimately in the universe, and it doesn't come from in politics. It doesn't mean cancel culture. It means that one day each of us will stand before Jesus Christ, and he will either say, enter thou into my glory, or depart from me, for I never knew you. Those are terrifying words. I recall, you know, for some years, you know, I um, I led tours and, um, you know, we'll still do it from time to time, I'm sure. Um, these days, I don't have nearly the, um, the time to do it. But I mean, possessing a couple of degrees in European history and Russian history. Um, I've led a number of tours um, to Europe and often take groups to, the, to cathedrals. And um, you have in, uh, in some of them these um, extraordinary, I started to say wonderful, but I don't think I want to use the word wonderful, but extraordinary murals of God's judgment. And perhaps the most terrifying one is at Albi Cathedral in the south of France. It is, it is enormous. And you're sitting in the pews, and then behind where the priest would, would stand is this enormous wall with um, the judgment. Christ sits on his throne, and on his right are the saints who are entering into his glory. And on the left um, are those who are being dragged by demons into hell. I have to believe this mural converted a lot of people. <laughs> I mean, you just sit there and you look at it, and it's terrifying. But it depicts demons coming up from hell and dragging these unrepentant sinners by their hair, their hands, their feet, and dragging them into hell into various tortures. Now, we can question whether the artist has an accurate, accurate depiction of that or not. But this much he gets right. There will be reward and there will be punishment. And not all reward and punishment is the same. Scripture speaks of levels of reward just as it speaks of levels of punishment. I mean, um, uh, Dante, you know, got this right in the Inferno. You know, he had 10 circles of hell, meaning 10 levels of hell, 10 levels of, of, uh, of punishment. Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote a book called The First Circle. It was about those who were taken off into the gulag. And um, but the the highly educated among them who could help build an atomic bomb, they were taken from the tenth circle of hell and put in the first, you know, where there's some air conditioning and some ice water. It was still hell, but it wasn't quite as bad as it was um, for others. Well, Dante, he um, you know he puts different types of sinners in different levels of hell. That's not, just, that's not just Catholic theology. That's biblical theology. There are different levels of punishment. Scripture speaks to this, that, that, um, that the punishment for some will be much more severe than it is for others. So that, you know, when you have people who will say things like this, a, a very good, well-known Christian friend of mine recently said to me, well, you know, you know transgenderism, homosexuality, 
it's a sin like any other. No, it isn't. That's not, that's not the, what the Bible says. That's kind of like the spatial argument of hell. Um, it's people, it's people misunderstanding what, what kind of separation we're talking about. It's not spatial separation from God, it's separation from God's mercy. Well, when we say that all sins are the same, what is meant by that, biblically speaking, is they all lead to separation from God. It's a break in fellowship, you know, with God. Adam and Eve fell from what we would regard as a fairly minor sin. You know, they ate of the fruit of a tree that they shouldn't have. And that led to a break in fellowship um, with God. And that meant that Jesus must come and pay the penalty of their sin, death, that they might have restored fellowship. That's true for all of us. You, you, we all have the taint of sin. And no matter how, quote unquote, small your sin is, you're separated from God. And you need Jesus Christ to bridge that um, for you. So that's what we mean when we say that all sins are the same. They are not all the same, however, in, uh, in terms of their um, significance, in terms of their consequences, nor in terms of their punishment. I assure you, eating apples from a, uh, um, a tree that your parents told you you shouldn't eat from, that's Augustine, by the way, um, or... Um, let's say uh, sacrificing your child um, to a, um, a false god, those sins are not the same. Both separate you from God, but the punishments are very, very different, and one is infinitely more severe than the other. And so, um, you know, the punishment in hell will, um, will run a spectrum um, of, uh, of things. And, uh, and I have to tell you, if you're somebody... Again, if you're pushing some of this leftist nonsense um, from transgenderism to uh, the sexualizing of children to the slaughter of the unborn, hell will be white hot for you, lest you repent. You should fear God. And that's another phrase that Christians, we tend to round off. We try to make it a little softer. Well, I was told when I was young, yeah, gosh, it says here we should fear God. Well, Larry, that just means we should have a healthy respect for God. No, I think it means fear God. I think it means we should fear God. We should, we should fear um, Him, and yes, that means a healthy respect of Him, but it also means that God is not, we are not to trifle with God. Uh, we are not to test God. Um, that he is a God of, um, of mercy, but he is also a God of justice. And, um, and if you are one of these people who are you know, saying and doing the kinds of things that we're increasingly seeing on our, in our culture, I fear for you. I fear for you because I have a relationship with this God and I know his character. And you don't know what you're doing. And you are inviting his wrath. Seek his mercy while it may be found. A couple of more words before we close on apologetics that I, uh, I think are, are, are very important, you know, on this, um, this particular issue. Do understand that apologetics, at the end of the day, it's not about how clever you are. Um, it's about defending your story, how Jesus, again, 1 Peter 3.15, defend the hope that is in you. You're not called to defend the hope that is in me. Can you defend the hope 
that is in you. And you need to, to be seeking the guidance of the Holy Spirit to make choices about whether or not you continue a conversation or you move on from it. Don't chase people. Uh, those people that the Holy Spirit is drawing, you'll feel it. You'll know it. And, uh, and you will be able to, um, you know, to engage them at a much more thoughtful level. But if they break off and uh, are signaling in you in every way um, that they aren't interested, move on. Uh, they may circle back. They may, uh, it may be that you've planted a seed that someone else, you know, waters and someone else, um, you know, reaps that harvest. Doesn't have to be you. It's not about the, fo- the force of your personality because there are loads of other people. You know, Jesus said the fields are, are white and ready for harvest. There are plenty of others. And, and also understand that we are all inadequate, each one of us. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. Uh, he does didn't need C.S. Lewis. He do, he doesn't need you know any of us um, to redeem um, the culture or redeem the world. Um, he can do it on his own. The fun part is that he wants to use us. That's the part that I think is cool. And uh, and I think of it with my own children. You know, I mow the lawn. You know, my kids would want to come out there, and you have that bar, you know, that's in between. You know, the top bar of a uh, of a push mower. And then you got another one just down below that. And I let my kids, you know, stand in between there and put their hands on that bar and push. And it gave them the illusion they were pushing the mower. Of course they weren't pushing the mower. I was pushing the mower. They weren't big enough. They weren't strong enough to push the mower. I and the lines weren't as straight when they were out there with me, um, you know, helping me do that. And I didn't need their help. But as a parent, I was thrilled to have them out there joining me in it. And I believe that's the way our God views it. Uh, we are imperfect vessels being used by him for his perfect plan. So suit up, get out there, and uh, and engage the culture, because I will tell you, the fact that we are facing this, the circumstances, the situations that we are currently facing in the, in, in the culture, in my view, are largely due to a catastrophic failure in apologetics. And that means that at some point, you got to get out there and you got to engage with people. And if you get bruised, and you will, it's okay. Get up and dust your knees off and get out there again. I cannot tell you the number of people who've been ready to tell me after I've come off of CNN, you know, debating a woman for, what was it, three and a half minutes, probably most, where you have only seconds to reply, a debate um, on uh, Al Jazeera broadcast, they told us, to their global audience of 260 million people where I'm taking on a cognitive scientist and a Muslim at the same time. Sounds like a joke. A Christian, a Muslim, and an atheist walk in to Al Jazeera in New York. But it wasn't a joke. It was real. And you have seconds to re- to respond to the things that they're, they're saying. Um, uh, a debate, uh, I uh, my debate with Christopher Hitchens and elsewhere. There are always people on the sidelines ready to tell me what they should, what I should have said. And I always say to them, Jeopardy's always easier at home on the couch. I know this to be true because a buddy of mine in uh, graduate school was on Jeopardy. <laughs> and uh, he did reasonably well, but he said, wow, is it ever hard when you're under the lights and you got that button that sometimes doesn't work and they're cutting for commercial breaks and they're stopping to look, in, to look up your answer. He said, on TV, it looks so smooth. It looks like everything was meant to be, but he says they're stopping the show frequently, and then there's the studio audience, and they're looking up your answers to see if they're correct, all kinds of things. 
And he said, wow, is it ever hard? I'm thinking, well, I sit at home and I win Jeopardy all the time, you know, as I sit there and I watch it on TV. Uh, well, the real deal is uh, is different. Don't be one of those um, those armchair quarterbacks who's critiquing everybody else. Get out there and uh, engage the battle and share your faith, and you will begin to see um, immediate results. Joy to have you with us today on the Larry Alex Taunton Show. We will see you again soon. Take care. Turn out the lights. The party's over. They say that all. Ladies and gentlemen, we are grateful for the standing ovation, but there will be no encore for today's performance. Please exit the building in an orderly fashion. Thank you. Honey, can we leave now?